Good morning. We'll turn in your Bible to Jonah. We continue our series, four-week series on Jonah. Last week, we started it with Jonah chapter 1, and it's short. It's 48 verses, and there we were introduced to Jonah and God calling this nationalistic prophet to go and to preach to his enemies, and Jonah, of course, heads in the other direction. He wants nothing to do with these wicked Ninevites. And we learn from chapter 4, the reason he rebels is he knows God's going to be gracious. If you weren't here, let's read that. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 are really important for the book of Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. If you're not there yet, don't worry. If you've got a pew Bible, it's page 657. We're going to be looking at Jonah 2, but let me go ahead and read chapter 4, verse 1, just to give us some context here. Jonah, after Nineveh repents, Jonah, to this, it seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending disaster. So Jonah knows, Jonah knows God's going to be gracious and that's why he disobeys and flees to the other direction. Jonah hates his enemies. God loves his enemies. But the God of all grace pursues this stubborn prophet and he hurls a great wind on the sea because sometimes God sends a storm to wake us from the stupidity of our sin. Then we have the pagan sailors. They pray, they have a prayer meeting and they're seeking God. What's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. So they cast lots and of course the lot lands on Jonah. We've seen God interrupting and intervening. You can't outrun the effect of grace of a sovereign God. Now I want us to look chapter 2, but let's go ahead and read all of chapters 1 and 2 to keep the story in front of us. Jonah 1, 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for Tarshish. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we won't perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship The Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry lands. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, Yahweh, 
Do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. The seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you... Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry lands. So let's look first at Jonah's self-destruction, picking up where we left off last week. Look at verse 8. The sailors asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble. What kind of work do you do? That was their first question. And notice there in verse 9, he didn't answer that question. He was embarrassed. He just tells them of his nationality, his real pride. I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And they're like, okay, you're trying to escape the one who made the sea and the dry land by leaving the dry land and going to the sea. And they say, what have you done? Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So Jonah realizes he's the problem, and he asks them to kill him. This storm is going crazy. Remember, these were seasoned sailors. This wasn't their first storm, but they were afraid so much so they get rid of all their gear. They're not making any profit on this ship, and they decide to throw him in because he asked for it. You know what he could have done? He could have prayed. He could have given in. He could have said, you know what? I will go preach to them. But instead, he's still running from God. This was a death sentence. He would not have survived this. He would rather die than to see God give grace to these pagan enemies, the Ninevites. His heart is harder than frozen concrete. So he says, throw me in. I'm done. Tired of running and I would rather die. And serve a God who loves his enemies. And notice the compassion of the sailors. Look at verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. 
Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. These pagan sailors, they don't want to kill him. Again, who really fears the Lord? Ironically, these pagan sinners care more about people not perishing than Jonah the prophet. They tried to get back to land. They didn't want to do it, so they tried, but here we learn, but they could not. The storm of God's judgment is stronger than we are. We do not have the ability in ourselves to escape it. It will wreck us unless we depend upon the means he's given us of escape. And here for them, it was this willing sacrifice of the prophet Jonah. In our case, it's the willing sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus, on the cross. So they couldn't redirect God's plan. They're out of options. And so they say, okay, we're going to do it. And so they pray to the Lord. Forgive us. Don't kill us. This is evident that you are the creator. We've got no other options. Here we go. Throws him in. As soon as he hits the water, the storm stops. The sea is calm. Can you imagine this? A storm like these sailors have never seen. They throw him in and it's done. And notice their response. Verse 16. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. They're converted to the one true God, Yahweh. That's the language they use. Their life is changed. Their false gods are turned from. As Acts put it, they turn from vain things to the living God. Notice notice chapter 1, verse 5 of Jonah. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And after this, verse 16, they fear the Lord, Yahweh. And again, we have more irony, more satire. Jonah sees the very thing he doesn't want to see. The reason Jonah's belling is because he doesn't want to see God save these non-Jewish pagans. What's the first thing Jonah sees? God save these non-Jewish pagans. They're characterized by humility and repentance, not Jonah. But it's over. It's calm. Now maybe he can swim to shore. Maybe he can swim and climb back in. Nope. You ever use GPS and and you go a different route? And Siri, what does she say? Recalculating or rerouting. Here we have a divine recalculating. Verse 17. Jonah thinks he's good. Verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So now we come to the fish, what we think of when we think of Jonah. But as I mentioned, Jonah is so much more than the fish. It's about not the great fish, but the great God. And he's not finished with Jonah. He sends a storm. He sends the lots. And now he sends a fish. God has a point to make. He's the maker of the land and the sea and all that is in it. This God is utterly unique. I like to fish, but my patience runs out about after an hour. I'm going to go to the San Juan trip this year. I'm bringing lots of books. I'm not very good at fishing, but I enjoy it. God calls the world into being with words, and he can call this huge well or huge fish or whatever it is to come and eat this nationalistic prophet without effort because he's in control. This God is utterly unique. It's one of the things we see again and again. God is in control. We see this all over the book. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord sent a great wind. He's sovereign over the weather. Look at chapter 
1 verse 7, they cast lots. Of course, the lot falls on Jonah. Even the sailors recognize this. They say in verse 14, you've done as you pleased. And then we see in chapter 1 verse 17, the Lord provides a fish or appoints a fish. And then chapter 2 verse 3, Jonah rightly says, you hurled me into the depths. These are your waves. These are your billows. Then we see in chapter 2 verse 10, the Lord commands the fish and it vomits Jonah. Then in chapter 4, we're going to see in verse 6, the Lord's going to provide a leafy plant. It's going to grow. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, we're going to see God provide a worm. It's going to chew the plant. And then in chapter 8, we're going to see God provide a scorching east wind. The Lord is sovereign. He is in control. He appoints a fish. He violates the free will of this fish because he's got a purpose to accomplish. He's on a mission. Nineveh will be evangelized. Jonah will be evangelized. He's the hound of heaven and he will chase his people down. He uses his word, he uses the wind, he uses the lots, he uses the fish. He uses whatever he needs to chase his people down. He's got the whole universe at his exposure. You may not know this, but Alicia, my wife, is also Dr. Doolittle. She loves critters and so in Dripping Springs where we were before this, we had a little bit of land and so she was able to accumulate animals mostly for free. We had a dog. We had three turtles. We had a crawdad that lived like three years somehow. We had uh, a fish. We had uh, probably several others that I'm missing. And uh, one day I was at one weekend, I was gone teaching at a conference and I come home to a pig. (laughs) Turns out a pregnant pig. So there's seven or eight or nine little piglets. And then a couple months later, we get called to move to Abilene. And so who, Alicia at this point is about 38 weeks pregnant. She wasn't catching those pigs. So who is tasked with catching the pigs? Me. And I thought they were pigs. I go out, those things are fast. I mean, they are very fast. I was like Rocky with the chickens, you know. And the first hot, it was like July, about a year ago. And uh, I just gave up the first time. I was like, I'm done. My, my, my exceeded my limits. Came back the second time, was able to catch a couple and trying to turn these little things into bacon, getting all sweaty and just kidding. We gave them away. <laughs> gave them away. But my, my limits were reached to chasing the runaways pretty quickly. A little sweat, a little mud, I'm done. Not the Lord. The Lord has no limits. He's on a mission for Nineveh. He's on a mission for Jonah's heart. And so he'll use the wind, the lots, and even the fish. His pursuit is relentless for those whom he loves. Job 42.2, I know, Lord, you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So God appoints a fish, calls him up from the deep, goes fishing with his prophet as the bait and the fish bites. Jonah goes into timeout in the belly of the fish, which had to be extremely unpleasant. You know, you see the kids' books, and it's like Pinocchio, you know, where he's like on the plank of wood, and he's got his lamp, and he's got lots of room. No, this was the belly of a sea monster. This was hot. This was claustrophobic. This was swampy. It probably felt like Houston. Had to smell terribly like a porta potty at the West Texas Fair and Rodeo. This is terrible for Jonah. We were on our way back to Colorado uh, from Colorado and of course we got little ones so we have to stop and we stopped this little place I think it was called Green Mountain Village and there was uh, some really cool swings and so of course we got little ones we had potty breaks and we were like 50 yards away and man this smell just begins and we get closer and closer and it's like our one place to go and uh, Karis stands out the door and she's like I think I think I'm gonna wait <laughs> Josiah tried he goes in but he ends up bailing this this was a type of death for Jonah 
This was extremely unpleasant. And God just pushes pause on the, the fish's digestive system. The fish stomach becomes a holding tank of grace. It becomes a submarine of mercy. The wind is the Lord's lasso and the fish is his cage. He's got a plan for this prophet. Notice he says there he was in there three days, three nights. This should sound familiar. Jesus says as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is a type of the tomb of the Lord. He's in a bad spot. And so finally, finally, he stops running. Look at chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. You listened to my cry. So finally, Jonah turns to his master three days later. He's got the will of a defiant toddler. But from the belly of the fish, he prays. In his distress, he prays. And he's not praying here out of affection. He's praying out of affliction. He finally gives in. After three days, he stops fleeing the Lord. He had sinned, so he's running from the Lord. And he probably thought all he could do was continue to run. Too late now. I can't turn back. I've already blown it. I don't know about you. I used to live this way. When you sin, not if. When you sin, how do you respond? Jonah thought, I sinned once. I've just got to keep going. I used to think I would sin and I would have to kind of beat myself up and have this little personal penitence and, and wait and not pray and not be in the word and think, okay, now, now I can get back as if he forgets. What a distorted view of who God is. That is anti-gospel. When we sin, not if. We go to the Lord, not from the Lord. He's not surprised at your feebleness and your fallenness. He knows what you're made of. He knows you're a sinner. It's not as if when you sin, he thinks, oh, man, I didn't see that one coming. Never mind, let me erase the name out of the book of life that's been there since the foundation of the world. No, no, he knows our frame. When we sin, we go to him in repentance. That's part of our growth in the Christian life. It's shortening the time between when we sin and when we repent. And you notice the, the sooner you repent from your sin, it just becomes less of an issue. You don't sin because you know you need to repent right after that. We stay at the foot of the cross. That's where the Lord wants us. He is honored. He is glorified as we take our sin to him and remind ourselves of his redeeming grace every single day. This hardship is meant to lead Jonah to the end of himself. God will do that for us. He'll do the one thing we cannot do for ourselves. See, Jonah can run from God. He can't run from Jonah. Jonah is with Jonah everywhere he goes. He needs some help. And so the Lord helps with this divine intervention. This is not judgment. This is redemption. The Lord knocks him down. So the only place he can look is up. Hopelessness is the pathway to hope. And God will do this to the children he loves. He'll bring us to the end of ourselves so we will look to him. I love the way someone put it. God's office is at the end of our rope. So finally, finally gets to the end of his rope and he prays. And this prayer likely has a familiar ring to it if you know your Bible. This prayer is actually laced with quotations and allusions to the Psalms, which can teach us something. It's actually a really good approach to approach the Lord through praying the Psalms. You get in a, a rut when you pray, just open up the psalm and pray through a psalm. Normally, you're probably praying for yourself and for your family and for your church and work situation. Just take a psalm and then pray that psalm for yourself, for your family, for your church, for your work. Keeps prayer fresh. So Jonah uses the psalms to help him approach the Lord. But this is also frightening. 
Because he knew his Bible well. He knew his Bible well enough to spout off several verses. Yet he still chose his own will over the clear, revealed will of God. It really should shock us just how quickly Jonah rebels against his maker. We do need to know the word. We need to know scripture. But we must not stop there. We must obey the word. Biblical literacy does not equal spiritual maturity. You may be able to wax eloquently about various theological issues, but how are you living? Jonah sure could, and how was he living? Are you generous with your time? Are you generous with your resources? How's your prayer life? Are you actively discipling anybody? The Great Commission is for every Christian. Sadly, it's more like the Great Omission than the Great Commission. Are you obeying the Lord in the Great Commission? When's the last time you shared your faith? Our confessional theology must match our functional theology. It did not with Jonah. Look at verse 3. He prays, You, Lord, hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. Remember, this was Jonah's idea, and it was the sailors who hurled him into the depths. But here, Jonah gives credit to God. He says, you hurled me into the depths. These are your waves. These are your breakers. See, Jonah knows that God is sovereign. He knows that God is in control. He knows there are no accidents in God's worlds. God is working out his plan. And the way God works out his plan, his sovereign plan, is through people. Let's go deep here for just a minute. We don't do this too often. Let's go deep here for just a minute. This is what theologians call compatibilism. And the idea is that the scripture, and this is really important, teaches that God is absolutely meticulously sovereign over all things. Remember Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. Even throwing dice is determined by the Lord. He is in control. We see that in Jonah. But people, us humans, are totally responsible. And the scripture affirms both. God is completely and totally sovereign. People are completely and totally responsible for their actions. Those two truths are not contradictory, even though our little finite minds often can't work it out. They are compatible. Hence the term compatibilism. Maybe the best way to illustrate this is from the story of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph is abandoned by his brothers. And he ends up reuniting with them at the end, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And he tells Joseph, Joseph tells his brothers, remember they sold him off and he rises to power. And he tells his brothers, you intended this for evil. But God intended, same verbs, you intended this for evil, but God intended this same historical events for good. Joseph's brothers were responsible for what they did. God was totally sovereign through Joseph's brothers. They're compatible. God is sovereign. We are responsible. And we see this very clearly here in Jonah. We see that it is the sailors who throw him in. And Jonah says, you threw me in. I want to read a long quotation here from a systematic theology book. It's by Wayne Grudem. Really good resource to own to be able to check out. It's not something you want to read cover to cover necessarily, but a good reference book. And notice what he says about this idea of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. He says, the life of Jonah is a remarkable illustration of God's concurrence in human activity. The men on board the ship sailing to Tarshish threw Jonah overboard, for Scripture says they took Jonah and threw him into the sea. 
Yet only five verses later, Jonah acknowledges God's providential direction in their acts. For he says to God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Scripture simultaneously affirms that the men threw Jonah into the sea and that God threw him into the sea. The providential direction of God did not force the sailors to do something against their will, nor were they conscious of any divine influence on them. Indeed, they cried to the Lord for forgiveness as they threw Jonah overboard. What Scripture reveals to us and what Jonah himself realized was that God was bringing about his plan through the willing choices of real human beings who were morally accountable for their actions. In a way not understood by us and not revealed to us, God caused them to make a willing choice to do what they did, end quote. So God is sovereign. God is the Lord of this universe, but he always uses means, and usually it's people. You tracking with me? For six of you, great. For the rest, let's just keep moving. Verse six. He keeps praying. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pits. It's interesting. Where's he praying this from? He's praying this from the pit. He's still in the fish, yet he can pray, you deliver me from the pit. There's a moment of sanity for Jonah here because he realizes the pit is much worse between us and the Lord than whatever is happening going on. There is a greater deliverance than the deliverance from bad scenarios and bad circumstances. And that's the deliverance from ourself and the deliverance from sin. And it's better to be with the Lord in the belly of a fish than without the Lord in the greatest mansion. The greater deliverance is deliverance from sin, not situations. Verse 8. Those who cling, sorry, look at verse 6. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, you brought my, my life up from out of the pit. My life was ebbing away, and I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. He remembers Notice he remembers when he's in the pit. Isn't it often when times are hard that we remember the Lord? It just is a reality. When things are going great, we tend to forget the Lord. Often the grace of trials produce remembrance of the Lord. Again, he'll bring us to a place that only he can bring us where we can only look to him. And it's his kindness. This is his kindness to Jonah. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Those who cling to idols, idolaters, in other words, they turn from God's love. And this word for love, maybe your, maybe your translation says steadfast love or even covenant faithfulness. It's this really special word that was used between God and his people. It's a covenant love between the Lord and his people, but his people were called not to worship idols, weren't they? First commandment, second commandment. Sadly, we know they often did. The history of Israel is the history of idolatry. And while Jonah here is not bowing down to Baal or Asherah or some physical false god, what is he doing? He is bowing down to his own way. And that's really what all sin is, isn't it? Choosing our own way over the Lord's way. Putting ourself and our reasons above the Lord. All sin really is rooted in idolatry. 
We sin because we're putting someone or something in the place of God. We look to someone or some temporal thing and we base our identity on it. And we try to find fulfillment from it rather than the Lord. And we do this even as believers. It's a temptation to be idolaters. And for us, it's normally good things. Good things that we make ultimate things, they become idols. Things that we look to instead of the Lord. What is it for you? We all have them. Calvin said our heart is a factory of idols. We're constantly making them. It can be spouses. It can be the idea of a spouse. It can be children, family. It can be career, money, reputation, health, popularity, looks, academics, material stuff. Where do you turn for refuge? Where do you turn for comfort? Use the language here of this verse. What do you cling to besides the Lord? And there's probably as many different idle temptations in this room as there are people. Some it's shopping, some it's food, some it's alcohol, some it's drugs. Another way to figure out our idols is to ask, what do we fear most? Is it loneliness? Is it being rejected? Is it sickness? Is it failure? What thing besides the Lord that if you lost, your life would not be worth living? Whatever that is, you're clinging to it, and it's an idol. Jonah says it's a worthless idol. And Jonah's, as we've seen and we will see, Jonah's idol was his own nation, his own race, being an Israelite. He would rather disobey God than to have God show mercy to these pagan, non-Jewish sinners. And again, I mentioned Jonah is kind of like a parable for the Pharisees because their problem was the same. They had elevated their own people, their own tribe, their own clan, their own race, their own ethnicity, and elevated above everyone else. That's all they saw. Remember Luke 4? So Luke 4, Jesus begins his ministry, and he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue, and he opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads Isaiah 61 that speaks of the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus says, today in your hearing, this is being fulfilled. In other words, it was talking about me. And they all like it at first. Y'all spoke well of him. Do you remember what Jesus does right after that? It's a fascinating story, Luke 4. You ought to check it out. He gives two examples in the Bible where God showed grace and favor to non-Jewish people. One was this widow in Zarephath. There were all kinds of Israelite widows. And this one time, God showed grace to this one from Zarephath. And then he mentions uh, the leper. There was all kinds of lepers God could have healed. And God showed grace to Naaman the Syrian. Do you remember what they tried to do to Jesus? This is the beginning of his ministry. They try to kill him. Because he has the nerve to say that the coming kingdom of God will include grace for non-Jewish sinners. Which is why he always got in trouble for hanging out with the sinners, the outcasts, the marginalized. Their racism, their ethnocentrism, their self-righteousness made them so angry that when, when the hometown kid came and talked from the Bible about times God had given grace to non-Jewish sinners, they want to kill him. They try to throw him off a cliff. They're Jonah. They're serving gods made in their own image, not the true God. Their God is their own race, their own ethnicity. Brothers and sisters, there is zero room for racism, ethnocentrism, self-righteousness in the kingdom of Christ. And if there is, the call for us is to repent from our idolatry. He calls these idols worthless. They're worth nothing. 
Prophet Jeremiah compares us turning to these God substitutes like turning from a fountain to a broken sister. And he says, be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. It is worthless to turn to anything or anyone besides the Lord. Look at Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. But I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And again, a quote from Psalm. This is actually a quote from Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. And really, isn't this the message of the whole Bible? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his. He owns it. It is his to give from eternity past to eternity future. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, sometimes people want to debate, can you lose your salvation? And I'll often respond with, biblically, it's not ours to lose. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah seems like he's doing okay. We're going to learn and we already know that he's not. Do you know what's missing from this prayer? Where is the repentance of sin? Where is the confession or the repentance? Let me read to you a couple of examples that we have of confession and repentance from David. David says, notice his prayer. And notice the difference. Psalm 32 one says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And then in verse 5, he says, Then I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Or over in chapter 51 of the Psalms, we read this. Again, after the sin with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you, you only. Which is really an incredible prayer, right? Because he basically raped Bathsheba and killed Uriah. But sin is always first and foremost against the Lord. Against you and you only have I sinned, David prays, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But Jonah is just thinking of verses to quote. The, the issue is we're going to see in Jonah, Jonah didn't mean it this prayer. He just wanted out of the pit. There's no repentance. There's no confession of a sin. He's praying out of desperation. He just wants out of this cesspool which is scary because he knows the right thing to say he knows the Sunday school answer remember he's got all kinds of psalms he knows parts bits and pieces of the Bible but he's missed the whole big picture of what the Bible what the God of the Bible is about one time uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson went camping and after dinner and a good bottle of wine they weren't Baptist I guess they retire for the night and they go to sleep some hours later, Holmes wakes up and he nudges his faithful friend and he says, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. I see millions and millions of stars, Holmes, replies Watson. And what do you deduce from that? Watson ponders for a minute and says, well, astronomically, there are millions and millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three in the morning. 
Meteorologically, I see we'll have a beautiful day tomorrow. But what does this tell you, Holmes? And there's a moment of silence. Watson, you fool, somebody has stolen our tent. Watson had some details right. He missed the big picture. This is the same with Jonah. Jonah knows parts and pieces of the Bible. He missed the big picture. He didn't understand the heart and mission of this God. He forgot the main story, right? Remember the main story. God creates. Then he creates promises from, to Abraham, Genesis 12, and says, Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world. Through you and your family, through Israel, I'm going to bless the Gentiles. The reason I'm forming you is to be a blessing. You are blessed in order to be a blessing. Then it's just repeated. If that weren't enough, we have Exodus chapter 19, and the nation of Israel is formed. And what was their purpose? They were to obey the Lord so that that they would be a kingdom of priests. This is why they existed. The people of God have always existed to bring the blessing of God to those who don't have it. Jonah missed it. Knew some Psalms. He didn't understand the big picture. This is scary, friends. And the enemy wants us to forget our purpose which is to be a light to the nations. Jonah missed the heart and the mission of God. And then we have verse 10. Look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. God says, good fish, well done, good and faithful servant, your job's done. God graciously hears Jonah's cry, and he turns him into fish puke, penitent puke. He's bleached and beached. He's repentant and regurgitated. He's remorseful Ralph. (laughs) And the question for us becomes, where are you turning from the Lord? Where are you rebelling against the clear and known, revealed will of God? Are you fleeing from his word? Don't wait for the storm. Don't wait for the Lord to appoint a fish. Turn to him now. Let his kindness lead you to repentance. You can't outrun grace. God sending this storm and appointing the fish, this is not his anger. This is his love. This is not punishment. This is not retribution. This is restoration. This is fatherly discipline. This is grace. He's not being paid back for his sin. He's being brought back from the presence of the Lord that he fleed in chapter 1, verse 3. This fish belly, it's not a death chamber, it's a hospital bed. The Lord's given him time to come to his senses. Today's the day. This is an intervention. Maybe you've been a part of an intervention. Maybe you've seen an intervention or you've got someone, usually an addict, and they don't realize the danger they're in. And so loved ones, family and friends will come and they'll invite them to a place and basically pounce on them, send them away to therapy hoping they will realize just how deep in trouble they are. This, this is Jonah. Jonah doesn't realize the danger he's in. Maybe, brothers and sisters, you don't realize the danger you're in. If you're turning from the Lord, there is no more dangerous spot. It's like dull cattle being moved along to the slaughter. You don't understand the danger that's ahead. That was Jonah. This is an intervention by his loving father. He doesn't understand that fleeing the voice of his creator is the worst move he can make. And so God intervenes. These trials are not punitive, they're restorative. He could have just let them go, remember? If we were the Lord, Jonah would have ended in chapter 1, verse 4. Jonah flees, forget him, easily replaceable, not this God. He goes and he intervenes, this rebellious, self-centered prophet. 
He has a plan for him and for the nations. So he disciplines them. Running from the Lord will lead to discipline by our loving Father. I take great delight in knowing that God will send a trial to me to make me seek after him first and foremost. He's so kind. He is the chief shepherd. We're going to our death and he brings us back. And usually it's painful. Here's how Charles Spurgeon put it. He says, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Again, God will do things to us and for us that make us feel our dependence upon him in a way that we should all the time, that trials will. Spurgeon also said, health is the greatest gift God can give besides sickness. Don't we see that in chapter 2, verse 2? In my distress, I called to you. Jonah wouldn't have called to the Lord if it weren't for his distress. Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. God will discipline us out of love to bring us back. I love that he'll do that. He'll crush our idols. If it's a device or something on a device, he'll blow it up. He'll cause the thing to break. If it's overly valuing a clean house, kids are going to spill milk. Worshiping our new car, little boy is going to carelessly swing open the door and add a little bit of character. If it's health, sickness is going to come. If it's pride, we're going to fall. If it's approval, we'll blow it. And this is his kind intervention to blow up our idols, to make us examine ourselves. And so when the trial comes, how will we respond? How will you respond? We learn from chapter 2 here, don't wait three days. Don't wait on the fish. Turn to him now. This is the Lord's word for you today. Notice the progression. You have his word, then you have the wind, then you have the lots, then you have the fish. Save yourself some trouble and respond in obedience to his word today. I wonder where's God prodding you? Some of you know right here, right now, it's time to stop running in a certain area in your life. Stop running from him, start running to him. It's his kindness that you're here hearing from Jonah this morning. What God substitutes do we need to turn from? What self-righteousness? 